You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, I'm really excited. This weekend, I'm actually going to be traveling to Kansas City. Now, if you are in the Kansas City area, you'll have the opportunity to come uh, meet me live. I'm going to be at uh, Embassy International Ministries, overseen by Bishop Anthony B. Johnson and First Lady Angela Johnson, with their lead pastor, Alvin J. Mason. Shout out to these folks. I've spoken with them, and they are really amazing people. And uh, the, the address of their church is 1725 North 38th Street, and that's Kansas City, Kansas. And we're going to be talking about dimensions of deliverance this weekend. Uh, it's going to be on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm, I'm going to be there all weekend. Um, and so on Friday, uh, we're talking at 7 p.m. Saturday, we're going to have 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. sessions. And, and then Sunday, we're going to be there at 9 a.m. service. And so I, I'm just really excited. I want to invite those of you that listen to this program, if you're in the area, hang out with me. Um with that said, we're going to have an awesome program today. We'll get to it in a minute. I just want to take an opportunity like I love to do. I, I, I believe in the spirit of thanksgiving, guys, because thankfulness is something that God holds very valuable. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, um, be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and thanksgiving, make your request known unto God. And you know, God really appreciates thankfulness. And I'm not only thankful to God for all he is and what he does, but I'm thankful to you for all that you are, what you do. <laughs> because, you know, those of you that support us with prayer and finances, you are making a huge impact. And I am so grateful that you are helping us to continue to to execute the vision Um Going into 2018, and, and I know we're still in summer going to fall, but 2018, we're already preparing, is going to be a really, really big year. I, I, I am planning to do a whole bunch. And so uh, we are setting the groundwork for that even now. And, and those of you that are supporting us, you're making the way possible. And I, I just want to tell you how grateful I am. And for those of you that listen, if you've ever thought about supporting us, it's it's easy. Just go to bridemovement.com we have a donate button there and and it is just that easy you can write us PO box uh, 835661 Richardson Texas 75083 um that's all i got folks we're going to get to this program don't go anywhere you're listening to discovering the truth with Dan Duvall <laughs> Today on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, I am sitting down with Justin Fall. And this is the first time that I have had the opportunity to have this gentleman on my program as my guest. But if you were listening to my program about, I don't know, some time last month, 
I actually reposted a program that we had done on his show, which is Fourth Watch Radio, uh, and I, I believe it was titled Water Spirits and the Beast Rising Out of the Sea. Anyway, we, we had a really good time, and I was really excited to bring him on at this point because he has just released a new documentary called The Hollow Earth Chronicles, which we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to tell you something. I've seen it, and it's actually fascinating. I mean, it's really intriguing. A lot of really, really good information in there that is going to make you think about things. Um, so I'm really excited to have him here to be talking about it. And before I introduce him, I want you to know where you can find him. He has websites at fourthwatchradio.com and also uh, the DVD we're going to be talking about, Hollow Earth Chronicles, can be purchased at fourthwatchfilms.com. Justin Fall, welcome to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Dan, thank you so much for having me. This is It's my honor and my pleasure. Really, really been looking forward to coming on. Oh, well, I'm really excited to have you, man. And, and I'll tell you what, um, dealing with some of the stuff that I deal with, I hear a lot of really interesting things, strange things cross my desk all the time there is something that i absolutely know to be true there is a lot of stuff going on right beneath our feet and yes. it is not good <laughs> and there is a verse in the bible that says every knee must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and justin you guys have been going deep into what this means why? You know, it's, it's it's funny that you bring that verse up. That's one of our source texts that we start to film out with. And most people read these types of verses, Dan, and they don't really comprehend what the verse is saying. I mean, they, they get the gist of every knee is going to bow, but they overlook the layers or what, what we would call dimensional layers that are, that are painted here. I mean, it's very, very, um, how can I put this? It's specific. And it's intentional. There's words that are intentional. Every word of God is true. And there are words here that are intentional that tell us that there are layers within the realm of earth. What got you started on hollow earth as a, as a subject that you said, you know, you're going to go so deep into this thing. You're going to have enough material to produce an entire documentary. Well, as as some people know already, and you know, I do have a, a weekly radio show that I put out, the Fourth Watch show, and with the Fourth Watch, uh, I've kind of set out to bring these these paranormal type topics um, from a biblical perspective. I feel that one of the most intriguing areas of research is the paranormal, and it's probably one of the most popular with our culture. Uh, a lot of people are excited about the paranormal, but they're 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 approaching it. Uh, in a very dangerous manner. They're not approaching it from a scriptural basis. And so what I wanted to do with my ministry, I felt very called in this area of ministry to bring forth the paranormal from a biblical perspective. And in doing this, uh, I, I came across a passage in the book of Job. And uh, if anybody wants to look this up, it's you can find this in Job chapter 1, verse 7. And Satan comes before the Lord. And the Lord asked him, he says, where have you come from? And in the King James, it says, whence comest thou? And then Satan answered the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, uh, when I read this passage in my own study, I began to scratch my head and wonder, what exactly is this saying here? 
And from there, I, I started to understand the physics. There's actual physics you can break down from this passage. The words used, you can go back to the Strong's Concordance, and you find out that there's something going on inside the earth that requires Satan's direct attention. And so that was kind of what launched me into this entire research project years ago. I knew that Satan was going back and forth inside the earth. That tells me there's something important going on there that he has to be a part of. And so that, that really launched me or catapulted me into this whole area of research. And then from there, my mind began to get blown. I mean, I rarely get shocked anymore. Uh, but this was one of those, those subjects that it, it was not just a rabbit trail. Many rabbit trails don't really lead you to, um, you know, definite proof of things. They leave you with more questions and answers. But my research into the hollow earth, questions were answered. Many questions were answered, and I felt that this was a very prophetic topic. And so here I am three years later, um, and I'm, you know, I'll say I'm, I'm chin deep in it. I mean, literally, I feel like I'm, I'm so submerged in this, in this uh, research that I, I, I see now when I, when I see things on TV and I hear teachings and, and you know, I, I see the hollow earth in so many things. So let's start here at the beginning. Um, you have a pre-flood world and a post-flood world. And you bring this out in your documentary. When people begin to go into some of these underground caves and caverns, they are saying these tunnels and caverns predate early civilizations post-flood. Many of them are assumed to be pre-flood caverns and, and cities and areas that were established. I want to know, what does Justin Fall think about pre-flood inner earth engagement? Why was it happening? And does it have anything to do with Genesis 6 and the Nephilim? Yeah, I definitely think it does. Um, I'll break down my view on this uh, the best I can. We find out that before the flood, things were very wicked. We know that, I mean, wickedness literally was at an all-time high. And many times people just chalk that up to wickedness without defining the wickedness. We know that one of the major wicked behaviors was the fallen angels were taking wives of women. This is, you know, we already know this for a fact. Um, but the fallen angels were also teaching religion to mankind. And in teaching not just religion, but they were teaching cultural, uh, you know, cultural education. They were basically giving um, understanding. I mean, even, even you get into the idea in the Sumerian texts of, they were teaching people how to brew beer, for crying out loud. I mean, they were literally teaching people all these different cultural practices which have carried on past the flood and even into modern day. But part of their religious teachings, they, they would teach about the ancestors or the ancient ones. And so the ancient ones are the supernatural entities, which we would deem to be the fallen angels, and they would come up from inside the earth. This is what's very strange. So they're basically, uh, they, they taught mankind all of these religious practices. And in doing this, uh, the traditions were passed down. And so in that passing down, what we now have is the ancient ones who brought about these cultural societies. And they would come up from inside the earth to keep an eye on what was happening on the earth. And then they would, they would basically come up, they would educate people, they would interbreed with women, and then they would go back down inside the earth. Now, this is the opposite of what most people think about the fallen angels. Most people think that the fallen angels would come to Earth, create, create their hybrids, and then that they would go up back into space. That's like the popular view. 
but they're teaching all of their own religions before the flood that they would go down into the earth and come back from their subterranean temples. So I think that's kind of an interesting factor that we need to consider here is that the fallen angels were not flying up to Venus or Nibiru or whatever. You know, we have documented evidence in these these pagan religions that their gods would come up from inside the earth. So <clears throat> these were pre-flood civilizations. This was going on before Noah's time because they were literally setting up shop as the earth was being perverted before the flood. That's this a really fascinating view. And here's the thing. Um, what can you tell us about uh, research into pre-flood tunnels? What we find out about the, the, the pre-flood tunnels is that they were widespread. We find out that under major, um, we'll just say major temple sites, and we even see this today. They, they validated this with modern archaeology. But under these, these pagan temple sites that they believe to be antediluvian, pre-flood, they find that these tunnels would go miles and miles and miles and miles, I mean, throughout countries. And so if you had access to these tunnel systems, you could literally go from one religious site, one ancient religious site, you could go all the way to another ancient religious site. Now, this opens up the question of portals inside the earth. Because if you have these entities that are traveling, we'll just say thousands of miles, you know, within a very fast time frame, it makes you wonder if there are these, these what, what we would call stargates or portals. The Native American people called them stargates. And the stargates sometimes would be at the top of a mountain, but we oftentimes hear about these inner earth portals. And so people who would take part in these rituals, people who were elevated in these religions, they would go down into these subterranean temples and the, the, the mythos behind it says, you know, their, their lore would teach that if they were able to, you know, if they had earned their way up to that level, they could go through a portal and then they could end up, you know, at another subterranean realm on the other side of the globe. Now, that sounds absolutely crazy to the normal human being. Absolutely crazy. But this is what they believe and this is what they've taught. So this connects all of these, these antediluvian structures and the underground temples literally it's, it's all connected with subterranean passages. Now, for an average person like me or you who doesn't practice sorcery, um, it's likely that we could go down, if we could find these locations, we could travel from pole to pole inside the earth. It would take a long time, but the, the tunnel systems, the subterranean channels, they're all there. They're there, and the Nazis knew about that. I don't want to jump too far ahead. We're going to get into the Nazis eventually. But the Nazis knew this, and this was a major part of the Nazis' checklist was to find these underground tunnels and to be able to travel from these from site to site, basically. Glo literally, pole to pole. That's their own wording, pole to pole. You know, there, there's so much to talk about on this, Justin, because there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, for, for, for me, um, dealing with memories that are being recovered from black ops, uh, government programs, different things that get communicated to me regularly, we're still dealing with underground portals. Uh, some of them are under the water. Um, some of these stargates exist in facilities, deep underground military bases. Uh, that, that and, and so it's, it's not like this is a new concept. That's the most fascinating thing. It's like we've just put technology around some of this stuff for those that are involved in this world it's 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 amazing and i want to have you talk a little bit more now about the ancient ones and um how 
you see them being tied into maybe some of the stuff that's going on right now? Well, the the ancient ones were very specific in how they dealt with mankind. And we see this is one of the interesting things as we research these ancient religions Mm -hmm. that predate Christianity. Uh, and that, that's that's the argument that always gets thrown in our faces as Christian researchers. They say, well, this religion predated Christianity and, and so on and so forth. Well, of course it did, because Christianity, I mean, people weren't even called Christians uh, until the New Testament times. So obviously, yeah, of course they were. But what we're dealing with was we have these these fallen angel entities that were part of God's perfect creation, and they rebelled. And so they already knew certain things about mankind and things about God's plan. They already knew these things. But they chose to rebel against God anyway. And so this is how they're able to bring certain prophetic information unto their religions. And so people, they see these prophecies coming to, to fruition in their time, and they believe this is of God. Not to mention well, of their gods, I should say. But they also see it as, as a means for achieving godliness because they're seeing supernatural signs and wonders by these entities. And so they are validated you know, on, on many different facets. But they would come down and they would teach these things to mankind. Uh, and I say come down because they initially had to come down. They fell. They, you know, at that point they fell. But then they would set up shop under the earth. Now, this is why I think it's it's very relevant to modern day, is because we have religions today that are expecting the the rearrival of their entities from inside the earth. This is very common. And and I mean, look, man, we go back to. Uh, th- there's a whole lot of new age beliefs surrounding the hollow earth, and that's why we have to tread lightly on some of these topics. The average person is going to say, well, that's just new age. Well, actually, it, it's, it's, it's new age, but it's also prophetic. And that's where we have to be able to rightly divide what this means. But they believe, and when I say they, I'm talking not just one or two religions. We have a plethora of religions that believe that their gods or their ancient ones, whatever they want to call them, that they are going to be resurfacing in the last days to literally wipe out evil. And their definition of evil is different from ours, clearly. But they believe that they're going to wipe out evil and that they're going to unite the human race under a new age. And this is where it's going to be like a golden age. And uh, we know that the new age believers tend to lean to this whole uh, age of Aquarius. And, and so they believe that this is going to be taking place. And so that's where we see this these ancient beliefs resurfacing. They've been repackaged into this new age movement. And so that's why modern day, you know, a lot of modern day believers really hold to this idea that the portals are going to be opened and that their gods are going to literally come up from inside the earth. So that's the modern view, which is really an ancient view. It's a view that's been taught in the ancient days. It's been written down in stone. It's been written on parchment. And um, there's a lot of debate as to proper interpretations or even translations of some of these ancient texts. Um, But, well, definitely we have some interesting stuff to talk about manuscripts when we get into the Nazis. But when you go back to these ancient ones, they had one main goal, and that was to detour people from the worship of Yahweh. I think it's important to go ahead and get that on the table, because many people think that, well, they they did good for mankind. They taught mankind how to do all these things. They were literally trying to take the worship away from Yahweh, and they wanted to be worshipped themselves. And so they set up themselves as gods, and then they set up a hierarchy under themselves, which we know as the Nephilim uh, or the giants, but they were the demigods. And so the Nephilim were set up to be the ruling elite. This is so important for people to understand. The Nephilim were set up by the fallen angels to be the ruling elite of the surface world while they were able to go down and exist in the what we would call the hollow earth realm. And it's very possible that they had portals that they were able to cross through inside the earth 
so that they could literally be existing in another dimension. Now, let me paint a picture real quick. If you're sitting at home and a demon appears to you, and I know, Daniel, you know this is real. You, With the type of ministry you're involved in, demons can physically manifest in your home. Mm-hmm. It's happened to me multiple times. They never win because we have the power of Jesus, but they have manifested and they continue to manifest. Now, what does it mean when a demon manifests and then as soon as you command it to leave in Jesus' name, it disappears? That means that just because it's not physically showing up in your home doesn't mean that it's not there. Now, I liken this to the hollow earth understanding that there are portals down there where, or, or gateways where these entities can be seen, but then they can also disappear and not be seen. But it doesn't mean that they're not coexisting in that same space. I think this is where a lot of people kind of have a hard time with the hollow earth because they don't understand physics. They don't understand that a spirit can be in the room and not be seen. Now, that's where you get into the whole idea of these different dimensions. And I know you've done research on dimensions, quite a bit of it. You understand that there could be a lot of things happening in one space, but it's in different dimensions. So I, I don't want to get too off track here, but I want to kind of give the, the, you know, a breakdown of that so people better understand that if you go digging and, you, you know, you find yourself in one of these subterranean realms, you go on one of these adventures, these, you know, uh, an excursion of sorts. Uh, you know, in Mexico, you can you can take excursions down inside some of these caverns, these ancient Mesoamerican uh, cavern systems where they would do rituals. And uh, they say, well, we don't see anything down there. Well, that doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means that those entities have not manifested to you. And, and, and I hope they don't. I, I hope no one sees these things. But they are down there. And according to their texts, they're going to be reemerging from that that under what we would call the underworld or the subterranean, <clears throat> excuse me, or the subterranean. Now, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please continue. You mentioned water earlier. I think this is very important. Um, one of the things, one of the first things I found out as I began researching this years ago was that there are certain Native American rituals. And when we say Native American, you know, I'm not just saying what we have here and what we call the USA, but, you know, you, you get over to Mexico and you've got, you know, these different Indian tribes as well. And I don't use that term lightly to say Indian tribes, but I'm trying to put it in words that everybody can understand. You know, you had the Aztecs, the Inca, the Maya, uh, you know, and, and you had these, these different uh, groups that were spread across the, this continent that we call North America. And so a lot of these groups, Dan, they would, uh, they would take a warrior. Uh, you know, he, he, this man was chosen. He was going to be a warrior for their tribe. And they put him through a series of tests. And in these tests, many times they would have to go down into a cavern system. And then they would have to go underwater. And it was through that water chamber. Oftentimes they would even have to hold their breath for extended periods to get through that water chamber. And then they would come up onto another surface area that was inside the earth. But the average person would never make it there because they had no knowledge of it. They would just see it as water. But these these pre-warriors, you know, these men who were becoming warriors in their tribes, they would have to go down there and retrieve some type of sacred ancient object. And so it's very interesting that we see something kind of along these lines in this in this movie that just came out called The Power Rangers. Now, you know, I never watched The Power Rangers when, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't my thing. It just, you know, we, we, we probably made fun of people that watched The Power Rangers. But The Power Rangers movie, they have some very interesting hollow earth facts that they present in this movie. The average person is not going to understand this. And that's why we break down these things. But these guys fall through a crack. And they land in water inside the earth. And then they swim through the water. 
And there's a portal that they go through inside the water to find themselves on more dry land. This is right out of the ancient writings of the, the Mexican Indians and the American Indians. The same type of activities took place in this movie that actually took place in ancient Indian history on our continent. So it's likely that they had to pass through a portal in order to get to that other piece of dry land. That's my theory on it. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. And, and this is the thing. Um, there are so many levels to this. And of course, I'm going to do my best to keep this interview about your research because um, as you talk, you know, my brain fires in a lot of directions. And I am going to be running some ideas by you. But for now, I want to come back to what you were saying about these ancient religious sites and the tunnel systems underneath. Okay, how does that idea connect to the Catholic Church? Generally, what we find is that wherever these ancient sites are located, and this could be megalithic sites, this could be an ancient temple ruins, this could be literally a plethora of ancient, we'll just say mystical sites. The Catholic Church finds out about these sites, and by, by order of the Vatican, executive order of the Vatican, they go out and they either take the sites by force or they purchase the sites. And, and if you do your homework, you're going to see that the Vatican has done this actually both ways. So even in modern America, they have forced natives off of Mount Graham to take over Mount Graham. Why do they want that mountain? Because that is one of the most sacred mountains in Indian history in the world, where it's believed that there's a stargate or a portal at the top of that mountain. So the Vatican will send out, uh, it's kind of like what, what we see in the Indiana Jones movies. The Nazis are always on site, right? Like they're always there, always trying to get these relics. Well, the Vatican is literally doing the same thing, and they have been doing the same thing. And so they go out, they force this, this property into their own hands, whether it be you know, you know, by force or by, by money. Um, sometimes, they, again, I want to be fair, sometimes they buy the land outright. They, you know, they, they have history of paying for things. But one way or the other, they're going to get their land and they're going to build a facility, a cathedral, some type of a temple. They're going to build it on top of these ancient mystical sites that are known to have extremely high spiritual energy in what we would call the spirit realm. And so that's why the Catholic Church, uh, by extension the Vatican, that's why they set up these shops everywhere they can to get power on these things. Now, I believe this is going to be used during the last of last days. I think the Vatican is part of this major global conspiracy to where they're going to be bringing together all the religions under their power. And it's not going to be a Catholic religion. It's going to be something different, but it's going to be literally poster boyed by the Vatican. And so that's why they want these sites. They always want these ancient ritual sites. And many times, Dan, you're going to find out that they that not only do they build on top of these structures where these temples used to be, but they're also building directly on top of underground caverns underground temples that's what people have to understand about this it's so unbelievable until you fact check and you realize the vatican has a track record of doing this now the ancient ones if their writings are true and i believe with many of the myths that we that we find in these other religions i believe there's a lot of truth involved there uh, we take a different perspective than they do because we're christians but these ancient ones would be literally existing inside the earth in these strategic locations. Now, when you factor that in, then it makes more sense why the Vatican would want to set up. 
because we know the Vatican is, they're, they're no strangers to satanic rituals at the highest levels. And so in these rituals, if they've got a temple or a cathedral set up on one of these ancient sites, they would be able to channel and try to open up a portal in their ritual to communicate with what we call the ancient ones. So that makes more sense. They're wanting to communicate with these ancient entities who would take us all the way back to the, to the days before the flood, literally taking us all the way back to the ancient religions that served and worshipped these entities. And the interesting thing about, uh, particularly these ancient sites of religious activity, they're located on ley lines, which is like the energy grid of Earth. So if you're going to build a portal to transition dimensions, it's going to be most powerful when placed strategically along ley lines. Um, what, if any, uh, connection has your research uncovered between ley lines and activity going on in what you call hollow earth? Well, people, people like to throw around the term ley line, and I think uh, it's important to say that while I do believe there's truth to the ley lines, absolutely, um, some people may not agree with us on this. Some people say, well, it's just, it's just mysticism, you know, whatever. But the occultists believe with all of their hearts that there is power and energy at these specific ley lines and, and even sometimes where they would cross. Um, you know, we don't have time to talk about the crossroads. Uh, that's kind of another topic. Um, where people would you know, make pacts with the devil or with demons at the crossroads. But ley lines, um, it could be, you know, there, there's a lot of things we don't understand about them. Uh, some people say that it has to do with uh, certain energies because it's lined up with certain stars. But I, I'm going to bring the other view that some of these ley lines might carry more potency based on the entities that are residing inside the earth. Because Paul talks about we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, we wrestle with principalities. Now, when we do our research on principalities, we find out that some of these principalities, I mean, they cover whole regions. And I believe we can track the principalities back to the watcher angels and dealing with the, the gods uh, of the old religions. You know, before they fell, I believe there were 70 of them. And people can, can research this going back into uh, Dr. Michael Heiser did a great job breaking down the divine council. But if, if my memory serves me correct, there were seven of these fallen angel entities that were not fallen at the time. They were good angels. God set them up as watchers over the nations. But then they fell. And we have little tidbits of this. I believe it's through Deuteronomy and even in the Psalms. Um, and that's a whole other teaching. But it's important to realize that they fell. But they were principalities. And many people believe that the principalities are so strong over certain areas that when we took over, after 9-11, when we went over and invaded Iraq, uh, many people believe that those principalities of Iraq are now what's powering the United States government. That's how powerful people believe principalities really are. And so if there's principalities located inside the earth, I'll just use one example, beneath the Tigris and the Euphrates. We know that there are angels, fallen angels that are bound beneath the Tigris and the Euphrates. This is biblical. And so with that being said, if they're bound, there's going to be a principality. There's going to be certain spiritual forces or energy you know, what we would call concentrated energy that's going to be over that realm. And so I think that some of the ley lines, depending on where they fall, some are going to be more powerful than others if there are entities or the ancient ones underneath. I think that's where some of this power or the New Age likes to call it energy. I really don't like using the term energy, Dan. I think you can understand why. Um, but 
you're dealing with this idea of these energies or these spiritual forces, these principalities. They're going to be concentrated in certain areas. I think that's where the ley lines are going to be the most prominently sought after in those areas. And if I didn't answer the question, please, please let me know. No, I, I think you did. And, uh, you know, people could take it or leave it. Uh, and of course, there was just a belief system of the occultists who, you know, whether we agree with them or not, they actually do what they do based on their ideas. And um, we are not supposed to be ignorant of the devil's devices. So, but man, there's so much to talk about. Like, and I want to come back now to the um, the whole idea of gates. And there's there's two areas where you do find gates, and and I think that um, a lot of us read this over this in the Bible, but. Truly, Jonah traveled through an underwater gate, and Jesus mentioned gates of hell. Can you talk about those? Absolutely. Uh, Tom Horn does a really good breakdown of the Jonah situation in the film, and he, he goes back to the Hebrew word baravak. And when you're dealing with this baravak, you're dealing with literally a city of gates. Um, again, I, I love English translations of the Bible. I do. I mean, it's the word of God. Um, but there's going to be a certain richness that you're going to get when you start studying the original language. Not to say that the English is not substantial, because it is, but you're going to get a better understanding, a deeper knowledge of certain things um, when you go to the original language. And when you get to that word Baravak, the city of gates, um, I can't even fathom what that looks like. Um, and honestly, I don't want to, Dan. I don't want to ever be down in that situation. Um, but if there's a city of gates... Um, and then we find out that the word gate oftentimes is used in different different languages and cultures as a doorway or a portal. Even when you're buying a house uh, or, you're, or you're visiting a cathedral or, or a museum, uh, certain certain cut doorways are called portals. You know, they call that a portal doorway. And it's just it's, it's architectural. But the word portal, gate, doorway, they're interchangeable in most languages. And so when Jonah was going down uh, into the city of gates, this Baravak, I think it's very important to understand that he was, uh, it was giving us an idea biblically that there are literally dimensional crossovers inside the waters as well as inside the earth. And so I think that's a very important fact. Uh, and Tom does break that down. He gets into that. And it's interesting because Jesus also used, um, you know, he referenced Jonah saying that the only sign that you're going to receive, is, you know, is the, is the sign of Jonah. And, you know, Jesus himself had to go down into the earth. And a lot of people believe that Jesus had to suffer in hell. I, I, I personally believe that that's ludicrous, and I mean no disrespect to anybody that believes that. Um, I believe we can, we can reference Scripture, uh, the writings of Peter, as well as what Jesus said. And I believe that Jesus went down there to actually proclaim victory to those spirits that were in prison. It doesn't say in the Bible that he actually suffered in hell. Uh, that, that's a kind of a popular teaching that's being made, made very popular these days uh, by many teachers. But it talks about Jesus going down and preaching to the spirits in prison. And preaching carries the idea of proclaiming, uh, you know, forgetting the American terminology for a minute. You know, we preach the gospel. Put that on hold for a second. Preaching is to proclaim. The old saying, practice what you preach, means do what you teach, do what you say, do what you proclaim. And so for Jesus to be going down into the heart of the earth, which is another telltale sign that there's stuff going on, supernatural stuff going on in the earth. That passage also tells us that there is a spiritual prison inside the earth, another reference to a hollow earth. But Jesus was proclaiming to them, I believe, that the victory was his. 
it was an insult to their face that I am taking care of business just like I said I would. And so that's very important to understand. And so, but you tie into this Jonah factor. Jesus says that's the sign that you're going to receive, you perverted generation. You're going to receive the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah, uh, our Messiah was, was in the earth for three days and three nights. And, you know, that's, that's a very important factor to understand. But Jesus also talked about the gates of hell. And many people overlooked this passage as well. Uh, but he was with his disciples, and he took them to a place. Uh, many people's Bibles will say uh, Caesarea Philippi. And there was a mountain there. And if you do your geography study, you're going to find out it was the mountain called Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon, depending on how you say it. And that mountain is very specific to the fallen angels if you read the, the book of Enoch. Now, I don't recommend all the books of Enoch, but Enoch 1, I believe, is referenced in our, in our New Testament. I believe that with all my heart uh, when we get into the book of Jude. And that's one of the reasons that some of the people at the, at the council did not want to include the book of Jude because it literally has a direct quote from what we call Enoch 1. Now, in this idea, Enoch tells us that the watchers descended upon Mount Hermon. They descended upon this mountain. And then you find out that that is the big mountain right there at Caesarea Philippi. And that is the very place where Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against thee. Okay, now, this is very important to understand. He is making a reference to the gates of hell while he is at that mountain. And then we find out that's the mountain that the fallen angels descended upon. And then we go deeper and we find out that there was an opening at the base of the mountain that appeared to be a cave. And many of the religions around the world uh, would travel. I mean, people from different regions would travel to this mountain to make blood sacrifice. They would take animals, they would cut them up, cut their throats, throw them into this opening at the base of Mount Hermon, and they would throw them in there as a blood sacrifice to their gods. Now, that tells us something else about this mountain. Now, that makes perfect sense that the, the gates of hell, there is an actual literal gate of hell. Not that we could penetrate that gate as human beings, but there is a gate there inside the earth, and they would throw their sacrifices down into it. Why would Jesus talk about this? Why would Jesus say the gates of hell? Why would these things happen strategically in that location if there was nothing to it? And I'm sorry, I'm asking you the question now. I didn't mean it to be a question, but um, that's something we have to really calculate in our minds. And, you know, some of this information, Daniel, it's going to cause us to reevaluate some of our theology that we might have learned in church. Uh, it's going to cause us to really stop, you know, step back and say, why do we believe what we believe? And it's going to give us a richer understanding of certain key aspects of Scripture that many people would just read right over. Okay, Jesus took his disciples to this mountain. He prophesies about the church. He talks about the gates of hell that aren't going to prevail. And then they move on to the next story. But then we study the geography and we say, wow. Jesus was literally pointing a finger in the eye of the enemy when he said that, geographically and strategically. It was very, very important, and it was very intentional. So we have a gate of hell within the realm of earth. We also have the Baravok, the city of gates, inside the water, the deep, deep parts of the water. You know, And many times people refer to that deep level of the water as the abyss. Uh, but I also hear people refer to the bottomless pit as the abyss. So, you know, we, we have some we have different terminologies used by different people. I don't want to create confusion there, but there's definitely a connection because you have the gate of hell, the gates of hell. Actually, it says the gates of hell, plural. And then you have Baravok being the city of gates inside the waters of the deep. 
So there is a major connection there. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's really important for, for the, the average Christian to enlighten themselves to those facts. Well, exactly, because Earth is much more interconnected than we think. It actually, Earth is like an entire system. Um, and it, this, the, a lot of these connections go very deep, especially for me, because what I've found is that a lot of the, you know, especially the top level survivors in the, in the world that are, are born, uh, you know, associated with the Illuminati cult ha have interfaces with Mount Hermon and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Like, that we always come to that. This huge level of significance on, on Mount Hermon. And um, that's true even right now. And in it's relevant to New World Order protocols. So uh, it's all very fascinating. Um, and and I, I just don't think I can go any longer, Justin, without getting to World War II, Hitler, the Nazis, and all of the stuff that they were doing. Justin, what did the Nazis know? I'll say the Nazis knew a lot more than people want to give them credit for. And uh, it's my belief. I should probably go ahead and say it's my belief. Um, I'll get into the facts in a second. But my, my opinion on the matter is that Hitler was basically set up as a puppet. And I believe we can prove this with, with, with our studies. But I believe Hitler was set up as a puppet. And I believe that the Third Reich was set up intentionally to, to fail publicly. Now, I know that's controversial. People think that Hitler was this horrible, demonic guy, and he was. He was, no doubt. I'm not, I'm not you know, making Hitler less than he was. But Hitler was not the complete mastermind. I think that's what we have to understand. Hitler was groomed for this position. Everybody wants to point a finger at Hitler, and it's okay to point a finger at Hitler, but it was really his handlers and the people that groomed him for this position. And he already had a disposition for this because he was already studying theosophy as a youth. Matter of fact, some people are going to go crazy when they see the film because we show a picture, a very rare image of Hitler as a kid. <laughs> and, I mean, and you can tell it's him. I mean, it's like, wow. But uh, the Nazis were probably some of the smartest people in the world. And let me explain this. They knew how to control people. They were, I mean, we're talking the smartest government that probably the world has ever seen at that time. They, they, were, they were crafty very crafty and this takes us back to the idea of satan being very crafty um and just because they were smart doesn't mean they were good i think you know people i don't want people to misquote me here but the nazis were super intelligent they had ultra technology some people like to call it ultra terrestrial technology because it was far beyond anything that the earth had had recorded as a public release see the nazis were actually advertising to their people what they were doing and so it was public knowledge but in, in times past, technology has always kind of kept hush-hush. You know, I mean, governments keep their technology on, on the wraps. But with the Nazis, many of the people knew what they were doing, and they supported it. The Nazis were so smart and so advanced, they made it their life's mission to literally travel the globe and to collect artifacts that were tied to ancient rituals. Uh, we see this, in the, again, to kind of make an Indiana Jones reference, uh, we see the same thing happening with that. Uh, they had a, a secret society, or we'll just say a group, uh, and the group was called the Honor Knob. And they would travel around. Heinrich Himmler was the head of this. And they would send out groups to go around the world and collect these ancient... Uh, all I could, uh, The only thing I could call them is, is artifacts and relics. So the Nazis would be sending out the Honor Knob, and they would go and collect all of these ancient relics. And part of what they wanted to do was they wanted to uncover the true identity of what they called the Aryan race. 
And this is uh, th this is kind of where the whole Nazi religion grew from. And uh, this came from the writings. There was a book called The Coming Race. And in this book, it described how uh, there was a civilization inside the earth. And we do a full breakdown on this in the film. Literally, we do a whole segment on, on the coming race and, and the theology of the Nazis. But they believed that they were descendants, watered-down descendants of this ancient race called the Aryans. And they believed the Aryan race, literally, they were, it was a god race, a race of these god people. And the Nazis believed that they were descendants that had been watered down over the years. But because they were descendants, they believed that they had birthrights to the inner world. And now this inner world, the Nazis believed, was connected literally by tunnel systems inside the entire Earth. We're not talking about isolated systems. We're talking about a major interstate system inside the Earth where you could get from any place in the Earth to any place inside the Earth, pole to pole. Now, they believed that they needed to find the openings to the hollow Earth so that they could maintain what they called their birthright. Now, this goes back into theosophy. Hitler was groomed for this position. And what we find out was Hitler had been studying this as a youth. He gets groomed into this. And one of the things we have to talk about is this power source. They believed there was a, a power source inside the Earth that they called the Vril, V-R-I-L, the Vril. That was the power that they were seeking. And it was believed that if a child learned how to wield this power, the child could literally rule the world. And that's a crazy thought to think a child could learn how to do this. But it was out of this belief system that you have the Thule Society and the Vril Society. Now, the Vril, literally, the Vril would have been uh, the upper echelon. That's that, that, you know, you get into the Vril Society and you're dealing with um, the, the, the creme de la creme of occultists in Nazi Germany. But in 1919, we started to see a big shift take place. And after, after the, the Germans had lost the First World War, they were literally in a position to where they could be groomed into the occult system. Uh, many people say, well, how could a whole nation be groomed into an occult belief system? Well, they were perfect. I mean, it, it was completely set up for it. The Germans were distraught after the First War, they were completely destroyed. I mean, they were in ruins. And as we say in the film, the grounds were fertile for a new belief system. And so they used the, the atrocities of, of the First World War. They used that to be able to push a new system upon the country that involved occult magic. And it, it worked. It worked like a charm. Uh, now, there were some Germans that were not in, you know, they were not in support of this. But by majority, the Germans were Nazis. By majority. They supported this. They saw the power that they were offering people. And who doesn't like the idea that they're supreme, right? I mean, I mean, it, it's part of, of human nature. It's the sinful nature of man that wants to believe that we can be gods. And that's what Germany was being taught through the power of the Vril and the Vril Society, the Thule Society. And they wanted to teach that they were literally heirs to this inner world kingdom. And as crazy as it sounds, Dan... This is the religious system of the Nazis. It well, was their highest calling was to literally find the opening to the hollow earth. And so that kind of takes us into this other area of where did the Nazis go? Well, the Nazis were, were able to make political allies with the, the Tibetan monks. And they were able to go over to Tibet and they were able to literally take entry into what we know as Shambhala. And there's very little that we can prove about the Nazis going into Shambhala. But we do have their writings. We have not only the writings of the Nazis, but we have the writings of the monks. 
And this is what tells us that something major happened over there. Now, do you do you want to do you want to hit anything else before we get into Shambhala? Do you want to talk about the the Vril maidens, or do you just want to keep rolling? I, I do want to talk about the Vril maidens. So, folks, you're going to just have to sit and be patient because <laughs> we are going to get to Shambhala, <laughs> and this is fascinating. Uh, I, I want to just pause here and, and just say this, Justin. One of the things that we have found as we have gone deeper and deeper and deeper into this uh, area of getting people set free from the deepest, darkest places of bondage is that the bondage that we're getting people set free from is more than sin. It, it's, it's actually genetic code. And I know that might sound strange, but um, it's my program, so <laughs> we're just going to put it out there. It's actual genetic code. And this genetic code has different designations and it's coming from different sources. And uh, we've been getting people set free from reptilian genetic code, draconian genetic code. Uh, all Every Illuminati bloodline has, you know, genetic code in it that basically works as a type of branding to them that causes the powers of darkness in the spirit realm to look at those individuals as their property, which is why we find a lot of individuals who have gone from deliverance to deliverance, from repentance to repentance, from church to church, from prayer to prayer, and are still in the depths of bondage and not getting breakthrough. And as we've worked into some of this, and we have specialized prayers designed to get breakthrough on these levels, we have seen the most incredible deliverances. Um, you know, not too long ago, I, I was at a, a, a teen challenge and um, you should have seen the guy's face when I got, a, you know, an individual delivered from the Bale bloodline. And it was it was massive and it, it was immediate. It was, it was 10 minutes and um, with very little manifestation, massive breakthrough. And I'm, I'm saying all that to say this. One of the bloodlines that we've been getting people set free from is the Aryan bloodline. Which means that trace genetic code from whatever the Aryans are is resident in humans walking the planet right now. And it's an evil bondage. And so whatever the Nazis were believing, as far-fetched as it may sound, what we are learning is that some of the stuff is not as far-fetched as we once thought. Now, now to... to, to Mm -hmm. Say something absolutely crazy, um, but true. We can, this this has to be the truth as we've researched this. Um, people want to know what are the Aryans. Well, obviously, this would take us all the way back to the days before the flood, and this is in their own writings. Uh, but we know that there was a group that has been on record as the Aryans, and it is my belief, and I believe this can be validated as a fact. Um, but it, but I'll say for the safety of listeners, I fully believe that the Aryan bloodline was nothing less than a hybrid creation between fallen angels and the women of Earth. And, you know, the first generation, they, you know, people wonder, where does this reptilian word come from? Well, we believe that the seraphim angels were burning fiery serpents. And so we, you know, uh, you know, my camp of researchers, we land on the fact that the angels that, that fell the ones that, that at least created these these Nephilim, we believe that they would have been reptilian in nature because serpents were not always bad. 
You know, I mean, keep in mind, everything God created was good and had a purpose, but it was in the fall. There was something about the seraphims that fell, and we have reference that the, the historical reference that the angels, most of the angels that were, were taking of the wives were of a group called the seraphim, according to some of the ancient records and beliefs of other religions. And so we find out that it's the burning, fiery serpents. They had reptilian qualities. And so the basic genetics in all of this was when they took a wife of a woman, their offspring, especially the first generation, the first generation would have not only been extremely tall. I mean, biblical records talk about giants being taller than the cedars of Lebanon, uh, the great cedars. And we find out that some of the cedar trees were 130 plus feet. So we know that some of these, these, these entities were massive, but they also had reptilian qualities. And so as the bloodline began to get watered down, they, you know, they began to interbreed and mix and, and this, that, and the other, you have a watered down stock, which now looks like a human being, but they still have trace evidence of this reptilian bloodline. And many people come to me and they say, well, you know, I'm from this bloodline or I'm from that bloodline. We have ties to the Illuminati or this, that, or the other. And they say, I, you know, I love Jesus. Am I going to hell? And I always say, look, if you love Jesus, if you have the desire to seek Jesus Christ, that is evidence that you're being called by God. And that is evidence that you can be saved. And so that's people write and say, well, I have RH negative blood. And, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff online about people with RH negative and how they're some type of an alien bloodline or a reptilian bloodline. Look, put that stuff in the trash for a minute, folks. If you seek Jesus Christ, you know, in Jesus Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. If you're seeking Jesus Christ, you've been called by God, and you are savable. That's the bottom line. So I want to get that out there just to kind of safety net people who may have fear about these things. But this Aryan race that you're talking about, Daniel, that, that I'm talking about, that the Nazis believed in, um, they were literally watered down and watered down and watered down generation after generation. And that's where you have these beliefs that they want to repurify their bloodline. Now, how do you repurify? How do you add more area into your blood? That's the question we don't know. But we know that the Nazis had scientists and geneticists. Uh, back in those days, they did not call them geneticists. In those days, they called them eugenicists because they practiced what's called eugenics. And eugenics literally is the predecessor to what we call genetics today. But in this eugenic study, in these, science, these, these we'll just say, um, speculative sciences, these occult sciences, they were working on getting more, you know, basically increasing the Aryan in the blood and decreasing, you know, the flawed human. Now, how far did they get on that? I don't know. There's going to be some things we just don't know. We, we can't find answers to. But that was their goal. And then if you go over to South America, you find out we know South America is, you know, it's, it's Spanish. I mean, you, you, we're dealing with Hispanic people, uh, you know, uh, people that would generally have darker hair, um, you know, and, and, and I got to be careful because I'm not trying to come across as stereotyping people, but geographically speaking, um, the average person down in South America would probably have darker hair and look Hispanic. But we have an influx of blonde hair, blue-eyed twins that have been born in South America, and Time Magazine had to cover this. They could not, they could not hide this. Uh, you can Google this. You can type in uh, Aryan-looking twins, blonde hair, blue-eyed twins showing up in South America. We have evidence that Dr. Joseph Mengele, the, the, one of the lead geneticists out of Nazi Germany, he was doing all kinds of crazy experiments on twins. He was like removing their eyeballs and, and, and trying to transfer the eyes from one twin to the other. Uh, crazy, torturous experiments. He made it down to South America, and he went on record as a um, – he was making house calls as a veterinarian. But that was his cover. He was actually doing genetic work down there, and he was uh, delivering people's children in their own homes. 
And so it's very likely, I believe it's likely that what he was doing down there, he was working on continuing his uh, purifying of the Aryan race in his own, you know, with his own studies, and he was doing it on the people of South America to where we now have all these blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Aryan-looking twins showing up in South America. Now, we did not include that in the film, but I included that in my original Hollow Earth research when I did my programs on this years ago. And so I kind of thought that was an interesting tidbit just to kind of throw into the mix just a little bit of extra information. They're trying to lower uh, the, the human population or the human pollution. And uh, again, this is their own terms. You know, they, they want to bring out the, the human side and they want to they want to upscale the Aryan side. And that's just it sounds to me like they're trying to reverse engineer and get people closer to be Nephilim than they were previously. And they believe they had technology that they could do this. They could literally change a human being into a hybrid. You mentioned not all dragons being bad. There's a very interesting passage in the Bible. I think most people have either read over it or just never gotten to Psalm 148. But if you read it in the King James Version, it actually says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you dragons and all deeps. <laughs> I find that to be an intriguing passage. Um, why would, why would dragons be commanded to praise God, you know? And um, anyway, departed... I mean, Matt, we have to remember these things, they were they were good, beautiful creatures before they fell. Mm. And so many times, you know, so often people want to curse snakes and serpents and dragons as it's all evil, it's all witchcraft. And, and I'll, give, I'll give people credit because in, in modern occult religions, they do. They communicate with dragon entities. Uh, matter of fact, I, I know a guy. He was, he was my boss years ago, and I went into his home. He was an occultist, and I was praying the whole time in the spirit, uh, just rebuking. And, and you know, I, I wanted to see deliverance come, but, Dan, you know you can't bring deliverance to somebody that doesn't want it. Mm -hmm. And this man was so engulfed in the occult, and he believed that they had dragons in his own home. He believed that there was invisible dragons um, that could, they could manifest, but they rarely would. But he communicated with these dragons in his home. He says they had a dragon-friendly home. And it, it, it kind of freaked me out at first, and I uh, started to research this a little bit more. Uh, this group of people believes that dragons are the answer to everything. They believe that when the children of Israel were guided, you know, uh, we had a pillar, uh, the, the cloud of smoke, and, and we had the fire uh, in the Old Testament, uh, which we know were not dragons. We know, I mean, we know they were not uh, false gods. We know God was leading the children of Israel. But in the New Age occult belief system, they have said that was this dragon and that dragon. They've, and I don't remember the names, but they literally said uh, the cloud of smoke and the fire were different dragons. And they believe they're dragons that they can communicate with through rituals. It's, it's actually heresy uh, to, to try to you know uh, attribute God's works to, to evil. But re regardless, um, they believe that the dragons are still here today and that they can communicate with them today. And I'm sure that you would probably agree, based on your type of deliverance that you do, Daniel, you would probably agree that people are communicating with these dragon entities. Look, Justin, all people need to do is look at their family crest. If you are European and your family crest has dragons in it, <laughs> that, 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 that's not just because people thought it was an interesting piece of artwork. That means there is some relationship of that family to a dragon entity. That, that's why it's in the crest at all. It has a huge degree of um, representation in the family. 
So th these kinds of ideas have completely been, you know, over our heads. Not until we're getting to the, and this is why there's fruit in this conversation. People are actually getting set free out of this revelation, and I see it every day. So, uh, anyway, dragons. Um, I want to get now, because otherwise we're going to get off track, and I'm not going to have you talking about Shambhala, which I want you to talk about, Justin, because this whole thing with Shambhala, Tibet, the Nazi connection, is absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, on this subject of Shambhala, I do want you to speak to the question, do you view Earth as hollow or do you view it as cavernous? Meaning, um, do you think that Earth has its own central sun inside like Shambhala would suggest? Or is it more a series of caverns or somehow both at the same time? And I'm turning you loose. Go ahead and talk to me. I think, I think both apply. Um, let me address the sun for a second. Um, they believe that there's a central sun inside the Earth. Uh, the New Agers believe it's a central sun that lights the entire realm of Agartha. Now, Agartha, Agarti, Agartha, different names from different cultures. But basically, Agartha would be the entire Hollow Earth complex. And in, in, the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the sketches and in the teachings, they teach that there is a central sun. Uh, some cultures call it a smoky central sun. But regardless, they believe that there is a ball of gaseous fire uh, a gaseous, I think that might be the right term. I, I don't know how they, you know, what science would call it, but a, a gas ball of fire that it's like a sun. Now, many people have kind of run with this idea in the Christian realm, and they said, well, that might be the outward nucleus, or you know, the outward part of the nucleus that we would call hell. Um, we know that there is an Abraham's bosom. Now, I believe that the the paradise side of Abraham's bosom is empty now. Uh, I believe that, that that happened when Jesus rose from the dead because we have a resurrection that took place um, where people who had died previously were seen on the earth after Christ resurrected. That's another part of the Bible most people don't know about. Um, you know, nobody teaches that. But um, we know that people are in torment, people who, had, who, who rebelled against God. And we're talking humans now. And so it's my belief that it could be a, a central sun in the earth, but inside of that would be what we call hell. Now, it's not the lake of fire, but, uh, you know, the, the current place that we would call hell as of right now. Uh, so it's likely that there is a central sun, that it could line up with Scripture. And, and we have to tread lightly on this because, again, this is some speculation, and I want to be clear about that. But the New Agers believe this with all their hearts. They've been teaching it for thousands of years. And so the closest thing to a biblical understanding of that would be, that would be where uh, a dimension that could not be, you know, it's a veil that can't be pierced through. You know, a human could not pierce through that that dimension, but it might appear to be a sun on the outside, a really bright fire ball of light. That's the closest thing that I could come up with based on Scripture. Now, getting into Shambhala, there are portals involved. And so this is where I say that the earth could be hollow and cavernous. You know, it's kind of coexisting together. Because portals have to be opened. A doorway has to be opened in order to have access. And they believe that there's a group called the White Brotherhood inside of this realm. But you have to be able to go in through a doorway. A certain portal has to be opened. So again, the caverns are there. The caverns are definitely there. Tons of subterranean caverns. But if a doorway gets opened, you could then walk through that portal if you're, if you're granted access. And at that point... You're going to see things that are so mind-blowing 
that you would not see if you had not walked through that portal. Am, am I sounding crazy right now? Are you following me? I'm following you. The portal gets opened, and when you walk through it, your eyes are now seeing um, what the average person would not see. So if you're on an excursion, you're going down, you're going to see tunnels, maybe some waterfalls, some stalactites, stalagmites. But once the portal gets opened in a ritual, you're now experiencing this brilliant world, possibly a digital projection, possibly another plane. Some people, they get into the whole astral projection. They experience these different planes, these different ethereal worlds, which I would call dimensions. So I think you're literally experiencing another dimension, which could be some type of a spiritual projection. Um, but you would only experience that if you are literally granted access through the portal. Otherwise, it'll appear just to be caverns. So I think it's both. Okay. Now, what does this have to do with the Nazi agenda? The Nazis had to find the opening. This, this was their religion, as I've stated. Um, they had to find the opening so that they could reconnect with their gods these strange gods that they believe they descended from. And so they felt that they had to do the works themselves, that they were called and even prophesied to find the opening to the hollow earth so that they could not only reconnect with their gods, but so that they could better fulfill the plans that their gods had for them. Shambhala was, uh, you're going to love this. Um, we find out that in Indian culture as well, the Aryans are mentioned most people say, wait, what, Hindus believed in the Aryans? Absolutely they did. Uh, the hollow earth in Indian belief is called Aryavartha, which translates into the land or the realm of the Aryans. So the belief of the Aryans is not just isolated to the Nazis. Uh, many of the cultures that believe in a hollow earth realm, they also believe in the Aryans, and there are no connections between their belief systems. Totally, totally separate belief systems, totally separate gods that they believe in, but they all believe in the Aryans inside the earth so there's a connection now between nazis uh between the buddhists and the hindus and so the tibetan monks you're going to find out that the swastika is used by all three of these groups but the the nazis the nazis were the only ones that were actually nazis <laughs> the, the tibetan monks were not nazis but they donned the swastika uh you have the hindus and they were not nazis but they donned the swastika because they all had the inner earth belief system that was all connected even though on the surface their beliefs look different. So the Nazis wanted to enter in to Shambhala because they, had, they knew all about the gods of the inner earth and they needed to get through. They also knew that the, the, the religion of the Tibetan monks, the Bonpo sect of the Buddhist monks, they had connections with these entities and it was believed that some of these monks even had the power to open up the portals at certain times of the year. And so that's why it was so important for the Nazis to make a connection with the Tibetan monks. And it just so happened, even though the Tibetan monks did not necessarily agree with the Nazis' theology uh, you know, or their political persuasion, um, they knew that the Nazis could protect them. And, and you know, I don't want to get into all that right now because that's just political history, which doesn't really matter so much. But there was some political stuff going on where the, the Tibetans needed protection. And so they had, there was political persuasion involving the Nazis. They saw it as part of their Dharma cycle, which we break all this down in the film. Uh, literally, it all lined up. They, they, they thought the Nazis were going to be used to fulfill a prophecy uh, about their Dharma cycle being completed. And so, you know, you have a positive and a negative in the occult belief system, you know, the yin-yang. And so they allowed the Nazis to come in. Uh, we present very rare photos in the film showing the Nazis working side by side with the Bonpo sect of the monks. 
they took them down there, they introduced them, they opened the portals. That's the best understanding that we have. And in doing this, the Nazis come back, they bring back a large group of these Buddhist monks, and they literally knight them, and they set them up as Nazi soldiers. They believed that they were connected to the inner earth as well, and so they wanted to bring them back and literally set them up as part of their, their whole um, regime. Uh, and, and we have we have records of this. This is actually something that really happened historically. They brought back the monks. They set them up as Nazis. And uh, Heinrich Himmler uh, was was in direct connection with them when they got back to Nazi Germany. And so they were trying to squeeze and extract as much information from these Bon Post sect of Buddhist monks because they had already been in contact with the Hollow Earth longer than the Nazis had. So the the, the monks were the key for the Nazis. It was the easiest accessible key to open up this doorway. That's why they went there. Staying with the Nazis, I want to come back now and cycle around to the Vril Maidens. The Vril Society was one of the few societies historically across the board um, that allowed women to be elevated to this level of leadership. I'm not saying they're the only one, but they're one of the few. And in the Vril Society, they had this group of psychic mediums that they called the Vril Maidens. And they were something spectacular. I mean, these were not ordinary women. These were women that had psychic abilities that were doing signs and wonders. These women were literally channeling entities that we could only describe as off-world entities. They were not created on this earth. And these entities were giving them information. And one of the most notable of the mediums of the Real Society was Maria Orsic. And uh, there's pictures of her on the internet. She, she's a very famous, uh, very famous Nazi medium. And she, along with another woman, uh, there, there's a little, some of the stories that we get that have been documented by the Nazis, um, some of the women, sometimes their names show up, sometimes we just get numbers of how many people were involved. But there was a certain seance that took place where Maria Orsic and this other woman, they began to channel these entities and Maria Orsic's eyes were rolling back in her head, and she began to automatic write. And uh, have you taught automatic writing before? Have you, you explained that on your program? Um, go ahead and explain it. When somebody channels an entity, they're literally their body is taken over by a certain entity, a, a demonic entity. Uh, could be a fallen angel, possibly, but we tend to lean towards the idea that it's actually a demon. Um, but regardless, they're they're taken over by an entity, and their eyes roll back. And they began to write without looking at the paper. Like it's almost like uh, when a blind person's walking with their stick, they're kind of looking up into the air. Um, they began to kind of look up and their head bounces around and they start to write things without knowing what they're writing. And on two occasions, Maria Orsic had channeled material where she wrote in two separate languages that she had never learned before. And one of those was ancient Sumerian and the other time was a coded Templar's language. This is a language that would have never even been taught in this country. She had no education in this area, either one of these languages. And so it's kind of similar to, um, you know, and I'm, I'm using this to try to you know, draw a little parallel. In the Bible, when the Holy Ghost fell at Pentecost, people began speaking in tongues and they were actually communicating to each other, but they had never learned those languages, but they were communicating. And so this is kind of a counterfeit this is going back to the whole counterfeiting what the Holy Ghost does 
or the Holy Spirit. This is counterfeiting what the Holy Spirit does. And so their automatic writing in these languages, Daniel, it took them years to decode these two manuscripts. And what they found out was finally when they got them decoded, they had to really pull all their resources on this because they had nobody that could just translate coded Templar language and Sumerian, ancient Sumerian. And so they, they finally got them decoded. And what's really crazy is that both of these, these automatic writing manuscripts, they actually, one was like part A, the other was like part B. Like they went together. You needed both manuscripts together in order to make sense of it all which is really crazy because they were both written in two separate ancient languages. And so they found out that once they decoded it, they found out that it was a blueprint for what later became known as the Glocka or the bell craft that the Nazis, we see pictures of this all over the place. And this was their spacecraft. Some people believe it to be a time machine, but we break this down in the film. Uh, we have some really good photos and pictures and, 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 you know, just, we did that. We absolutely went, we went all out trying to get the best visual aids for some of these things because we're, we're tapping into things that the average person has no clue about. But that's the type of power that they were dealing with, Dan. They were dealing with channeling entities that were able to literally write out ancient manuscripts in secret languages. That's the, the level of occultism that the Nazis were practicing. And, and well, truly, and they were just opening the door to that. Um, there's been many technologies, I think, at this point that's been derived from non-human intelligences. And, uh, but like, clearly, um, this is documented. And it's, it, and I wanted you to say something else, Justin, just because I found it so fascinating. Why did these Vril Maidens have such long hair? They were not only beautiful. I think this is also one of the aspects to throw out there. The Vril Maidens were practically supermodels. I mean, they were like the, the most attractive women of the Nazis. Uh, they were, for the most, and I'm sure that, you know, they might have had a couple that weren't so attractive. But the pictures that we have of the Vril Maidens, they were like supermodels. And they would grow their hair. You know, some of them below their butt. Some of them would grow their hair below their knees. Some of them would grow it down to their ankles. And as Jim Wilhelmson says in the film, some would grow it down past their feet. And it's really interesting because this was their M.O. Like you don't you won't find pictures of a real maiden that doesn't have extremely long hair. And so they believed and it's not just their belief system. There are other other ancient belief systems where the women would grow their hair really long because they believed that the, it was the hair of the woman that, that acted like a cosmic antenna in communication with entities. Now, while that might sound crazy to somebody listening right now, uh, we find a very peculiar passage in the New Testament where Paul says that when a woman prays, she should cover her head for the sake of the angels. 1 Corinthians 11.10. And is. what it says here, uh, the King James popped up here, for this cause ought the women to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, the different translations, there are some better translations for certain passages, um, but it literally talks about here um, that the woman has a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, a covering on account of the angels. And, you know, you can, people, you can go study this, uh, 1 Corinthians, the, you know, it, it's, it's hard to break it down without getting into the, the scripture before and after. But the idea that we landed on in the film is that 
the women, they, they the angels were were lusting. The angels were seeking the women because of their hair. Now, again, some people may not agree with us on this, but how many times have people read this passage in 1 Corinthians and they didn't understand what it meant? They, they thought maybe it was a cultural situation. Well, maybe that was just cultural. But then we find out that the occult groups had this ancient belief that the woman's hair was a cosmic antenna, that it attracted and caused the angels to lust. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and it's... It's something that is worth taking note of. And there, there's other aspects of hair that, uh, you know, I think would tie in on this conversation. One, the hair has uh, DNA of the person in it. Um, oftentimes, if a person's going to do witchcraft against another individual, they're going to try to get a sample of their hair or their nails. And if possible, a vial of their blood, although that can be more difficult to obtain. And but, you know, the the hair has significance in in a number of ways. And, and I'll tell you, even in our work, and I'm not going to get into that on this program, uh, we have found that hair has purposes and uses in the occult world that I mean are 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 just almost nonsensical when put into English language. It's just like, are you kidding me? That too, but um, I, I just think I just find it highly fascinating, <clears throat> Justin. Yeah, I'll I'll make one more statement on the hair issue um, to break it down, and I'll give I'll give a really quick breakdown here um, to do a literal translation. You know, we're dealing with Greek language here, and in the Greek language uh, with our manuscripts, we find out that sometimes you'll have six or seven different words uh, that could have been translated. Uh, from the passage and so to kind of do an expanded version on this basically for this reason because the angels are watching a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority and we find out what the authority of head covering really means and Christ is the head of the church and, and again that's a whole teaching that we could go deep into fact is there may be some really good teachings online you can find on that but you can go study 1 Corinthians chapter 11 studying in context and go back to a word study, and you're going to be absolutely just blown away at the connections of why it's possible that the hair was used to cause the angels to, I mean, the angels would see it and want that woman. And so in doing that, they would communicate with that woman if they didn't have a sign of authority or a covering over their head. Because when they would cover their head, it was to show that they had, uh, they were under someone's authority, like the authority of their husband. Okay, and even further by extension, the authority of Jesus Christ. But if they didn't have a covering on their head in this cultural reference here, because it is partially cultural, I'll say that it is partially. But if they if they didn't have a head covering, then they were showing that they were not under any authority. And so the angels would have seen them as open game. And so you have a woman with really long hair who's channeling. She's going to have a greater reach to the entities who are, you know, they're, they're literally coexisting in our realm, although they're in a separate dimension. And so they see this woman with long hair, she's not wearing a head covering, and they're attracted to her, and they're going to be quick to communicate with her. That's basically a breakdown of the parallels between the two. Okay, Justin. I'm, so, I'm probably going to blow somebody's mind with some of this stuff, <laughs> but we have to understand. I hope you do. Uh, that, that's, why we make a, that's why we made this film, was to show that, that the hollow earth... And I use that term a lot. I, you know, I use the terminology "hollow earth" because that's the popular phrase for it. 
but it's so ingrained in cultures of the world and the religions of the world, but it also has so many ties to scripture and prophecy and things that we're going to be seeing. Um, and, and before we before we do stop the interview, I do want to make some references to the prophecy side of this and what we're going to be expecting to see in the end times. Before we get to the prophecies, what about the North and South Pole? What's the deal, Justin? So it's my belief that we have a bottomless pit. And bottomless literally means there's no bottom, right? I mean, clearly, it's in the title. Uh, it's been my belief system for many years that the North and South Pole are the opening, the, the, the two openings of the bottomless pit. Some people may disagree with me, and that's fine. But that seems to make the most sense because an angel comes down with a key and opens this bottomless pit during the tribulation period. And so for an angel to come down, that tells us that the bottomless pit is down in our realm of existence. It is within the realm of Earth. So it makes the most sense that the North and South Pole would be the openings to the, to the bottomless pit. Now, there are people who have traveled into these openings. One being a very decorated admiral, I mean major hero in United States government history, Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd. You know, we, we do a we, we reenact a full excerpt from his diary, which some people want to criticize and they want to say that it's not an accurate diary. But, um, you know, my my resident physicist, that's what I call him. I call him jo Josh Peck. Um, he's he's my physics guy. Um, and, and he breaks this down that there's physics involved in what Admiral Byrd described. Admiral Byrd was taken down by Nazi looking UFOs. Um, now, they were not Nazi, but they had Nazi symbolism on them. And he was taken down into the North Pole opening, and he met with an entity known as the master of the inner earth. Now this, again, we don't have time to break all this down for the show, but we do a, a major breakdown on this. We, we give history of who Admiral Byrd was. We break down his account from his diary. We do a reenactment, kind of like old-time radio reenactment. Um, it's very important to understand that there are people who are on record of saying that they've been taken into the opening of the North Pole. And not just Admiral Byrd, but we have a story of another guy, a, a Norwegian sailor named Olaf Janssen, who sailed into the opening of the North Pole. And there he lived with an inhabitant, uh, a, a community of, of uh, these inhabitants that were giants inside the earth as he and his son went into the North Pole. And from his record, time operates differently inside this realm. The time that he was there was perceived differently on the surface than it was perceived while he was down in the earth. This is a whole other area of, of research, of, of physics. So the North Pole has some very supernatural elements about it. Uh, and then the South Pole, we get into the whole idea of the, uh, the Arctic Plateau and what's going on in Antarctica. Uh, that's a whole other show. Maybe we could do a show in the future about Antarctica because that's, that's literally, that's an entire discussion. But there are things going on in Antarctica. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things we break down in the film is a battle that took place at what we know as Operation High Jump. And Operation High Jump, is, it, it's, it's, it was never classified. I mean, it, it's, it's always been public knowledge, but they told the public in America that it was, a, it was basically an exploration mission, a scientific mission to go and, and research Antarctica. But in reality, it was something totally different. And we explain this, we break this down um, literally, I, I hate to say it like this, I'm not trying to toot my horn because it wasn't just me, but we, you know, between me and the other guests that are in the film, we do a spotless breakdown of what happened with Operation High Jump. And our men faced opposition in Antarctica. 
with UFOs and what they call alien technology. They they got their they literally got their tails whipped in a short amount of time, and they had to come back to the U.S., Australia, and Britain, because we we took some of our allies with us down there. Um, that's a whole other discussion. But Antarctica is we have maps, Daniel. We have maps showing Antarctica without ice. One of the maps that we show in the film is the Perry Reese map. So there's something hidden beneath the ice. And this ties us back to the Nazis as well because the Nazis were some of the first to go to Antarctica with a vision of taking it over and inhabiting it. Uh, There's records of a secret base known as Base 211 that they had been setting up in Antarctica. And before the, the Nazis were at war with America, you know, Admiral Byrd, there's documents of Admiral Byrd going and talking with the Germans about their research because they had already been down in Antarctica before we went down there. And we didn't have an official presence in Antarctica until uh, 10 years after Operation High Jump. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot to be said about Antarctica. But the openings, we hear stories from British intelligence coming back and saying that they are seeing entities in Antarctica. Uh, entities that we would only describe as a Yeti or an abominable snowman. And that's crazy. That, the average person hears that and they're like, okay, this is just totally made up. But the, these are... You know, these are top secret, highly trained operatives of the British government that are coming back saying these things on record. So something's going on in Antarctica. Something's hidden beneath the ice. Uh, We believe there's at least one opening, possibly more than one opening in Antarctica based on our research. But the North and South Poles, that's where you enter into. And Admiral Byrd talks about when he's flying to the North Pole, he goes from being in ice and, and extreme temperatures to all of a sudden being in a summer environment. It's like deciduous forest. I mean, you've got you've got waterfalls, you've got grass and trees. And he even says that he saw a mammoth. This is all documented in Admiral Byrd's diary. And so th- there's a pole shift. One minute you're in the ice, and it's like you. It's almost like you're flying through a dimensional change, and all of a sudden you're literally in a paradise land of like a summer getaway. Which is so fascinating. Now, of course. This begs a question that I'm not going to ask you because we've already talked about this before the program started. And, you know, I I know you don't really get into the debate that's been erupting everywhere on round earth or flat earth. But I do want to say one thing from my perspective, uh, for those that are listening, you know, um, I am not a flat earther. but I'm not a globalist either. (laughs) Some of the information that we've gotten back, which has really forced me to think about things in a different way, and this is relevant to something that Justin just said, and I'm just leaving it here for you all to ponder and scratch your heads about, is is that we've gotten back several data points and working with survivors, working with parts, some that actually we've brought back from future timelines, and I, I don't want to get into all of that here because I you know, but um, and, and also working with some of the angels of the Lord as as well as you know all the other resources given us, we we get back data points sometimes, and and one of those data points that has actually been presented to me more than once is that Earth is best understood as a torus. Now, a, a torus is a mathematical idea; it's it's a shape essentially, and a, a torus can be smashed together to look kind of like a ball 
But if you expand it out, it, it turns into a donut and then more like a disk. And all versions of it are the same equation, the torus, T-O-R-U-S. And the interesting thing is that if it's smashed up into a ball-like shape, what you have are openings at the top and bottom that connect all the way through the center. Now, that's for you guys to consider. And of course, do I have my own research into this area? I don't. Um, I only know some of the data points that get presented to me and I kind of just stick with my assignment. But the, 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 the information that Justin is presenting just was one of those you know, fireworks that went off in my head as I was uh, watching his documentary because of this data point. And it's just one of those things that make you go, hmm. Now, Justin. I do want to comment on this. Please. Um, you know, it's a... Uh... I heard a physicist once explain, and he was a Christian, a solid Bible. He was actually a Bible teacher and a physicist. And he was explaining that with the UFO phenomena, uh, and I say phenomena because it's, it's so widespread. It, you know, it's like the, the accounts are, are you know, similar but different. Um, we're dealing with an extra-dimensional craft. Now, for anybody who doubts UFOs, um, we, we have reference in the Bible to the chariots of fire, uh, what other religions call chariots of the gods. Um, vehicles um, it's extra dimensional it's coming from outside of our dimension it was even created outside of our dimension and so when it passes through our dimension we see it oftentimes as you know many of them we see as a flat disc and so I, I think it could be very likely that there are elements of the flat earth model and the globe earth model that actually coexist but it's our perception that really gets the debate going and I don't take a side on the debate. I'm not going to call myself either or. And people can, you know, they can criticize me for saying that. But that, that, that's, that's where I land on it. Um, I, I think that, you know, we perceive things in this realm, you know, in our reality, in this dimension. But if we were seeing it from a, another perspective, an extra dimensional perspective, I think we would see it differently. And so, you know, it's likely that there's elements of both Earth models and again, it's funny because you have so many different flat earth models that don't even agree with each other because different people come up with different ideas and, and these new notions based on their research. And that's fine. Um, but I think there's some elements of both earth models that could be coexisting together. And, you know, I, I, I try to tread lightly on this on the topic of that because people get very touchy about it. Um, I'm not going to promote one or the other. Uh, but I'll say I think that they both kind of coexist together if we could understand physics better. But regardless of that, um, I think that it's important to note that when you study the hollow earth or the idea of the subterranean world existing beneath our feet, um, you find this belief system in almost every, practically every culture of the world, whether they believed in a round earth or a flat earth. And I think that's an important note to make because we actually, we show a diagram in the film uh, showing the, 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 the distance between um, you know the different realms basically get going back into the Greek belief system uh, you know you've got you've got uh, Hades you know you've got Tartarus you've got these different levels and so we used a model that actually depicts a flat earth model in the film we were not promoting one or the other view we were just showing a spatial dimensional um, you know difference and so I think that that was the best model that we could use for that but cultures around the world that believe in both earth shapes, whether it's flat, you know, whether it's, whether it's a sphere, whether it's a square, you know, a lot of people have different views. Uh, all the cultures always land on the same outcome, that there is a subterranean realm. And whether you believe in a flat earth or a, a globe earth, and you're listening right now, 
Um, it doesn't matter the shape of the earth in relativity to the idea of the subterranean. The Bible is absolutely clear about a subterranean realm. You know, in the earth, under the earth, the grave, the gates, the doorways, Jacob's ladder. I mean, the list goes on. We could really hit a whole bunch of very interesting topics all related. And we do. We, we hit a lot of these topics in the film. But some people, they want to divide over the, the shape of the earth. And they say, you know, we don't believe in a hollow earth because we believe in a flat earth. Well, most of my friends that believe in a flat earth, they believe in the hollow earth because it's biblical. Thank you for that, Justin. Now, I, I'm going to pull the, the prophetic point to the center now because I want to give you an opportunity to explain to us why you believe the hollow earth has prophetic implications. We know that the, the bottomless pit is going to be opened up. This is directly out of Scripture. The bottomless pit, there's an angel that's going to come down with a key. Is it a literal key? Is it an authority that he's given? You know, we don't know for sure what that key is going to look like, but we know unequivocally that, a, that an angel is going to open up the bottomless pit. And then out of that bottomless pit are going to rise to the surface some of the craziest demonic entity armies that people have ever seen. I mean, it's going to make Hollywood movies look like child's play. Um, you know, Tom Horn, a good friend of mine, he likens it to these demonic insectoid hybrid creatures. They're going to be coming upon the earth and they're going to be used for God's judgment. Now, that's prophetic in and of itself. Another aspect of prophecy is that the Antichrist, we know that the characteristics of the Antichrist, um, he's literally going to be able to come and deceive the world. And he's going to rise up from somewhere. Um, many people have different views on that, and that's fine. But when we go to the prophecies of Shambhala, it's in their own prophetic writings that this inner earth king is going to rise to the surface and that he's going to come with his army of, of entities, and they're going to make peace on the earth. They're going to do away with anybody who is, is evil. And again, their definition of evil would probably include Christians because we stand for the, the gospel as the only truth of salvation. And so we would be considered evil. So the, the entity of inner earth, the master, is going to raise up, and he's coming with his armies, and he's literally going to create this new golden age. And so that lines up with Scripture pretty close, except it's the alternate view. It's the complete polar opposite of what the Bible teaches. And so they're looking at this, this entity coming with his armies as being good. The Bible says that these, these things coming up from the earth are going to be evil, and they're going to be used for God's judgment. So I, I think that's a major prophetic connection that needs to be made. Um, that's very important. But then we also find out in Native American culture that there are prophecies with, with North American. We're, we're dealing with you know uh, these Indian tribes in the United States, and they believe that the giants— see, they knew. They knew that the giants were supernatural entities. They knew they were hybrids. They knew that they were not normal humans. And so in, in, in many of the cultures— uh, we find that there's belief that the giants of the, the bones of the giants are being guarded inside the earth and that there's going to be a resurrection of the giants in the last days. And it's all in line with their own prophecy. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this? I just want to take, uh, I'm going to, you know, I don't usually go back to the Septuagint, but I'm going to here because I think the Septuagint really rendered this information in, in a, just a mind-blowing manner. But uh, if you go to Isaiah, if you go to Isaiah chapter 13 in the Septuagint, um, this is a vision, by the way, the vision which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw against Babylon. 
And this is unbelievable. It says, I give command and I bring them. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. That's verse 3. Giants are coming to fulfill God's wrath. Okay, well, keep in mind, this is Isaiah, okay? This is not... Uh, this is not uh, pre-flood. <laughs> so we're dealing with a prophecy which seems to be end times based because it has not been fulfilled yet. And God is saying that he's going to give command and bring forth giants to fulfill his wrath. Now, there's debate as the word giants. Some people try to say it just means mighty men or, you know, there, there's a lot of debate. But it's interesting that the Septuagint brings forth this language and we have this prophecy, multiple prophecies in the Native Americans that believe the giants are going to be resurrected in the latter days of their prophecy. So again, we're seeing prophecies in these mystic religions which line up with Scripture, except they're bringing the polar opposite view. They're taking the view that their, that their entities are good. The Bible says that they're evil. But the bottom line is God is going to use this to fulfill his wrath. But again, we're dealing with inner earth. We also cover accounts in the film where there are whole cities of giants existing right now in the Middle East inside the earth, underground cities. Reports coming from people in the military, high-level military, are saying they've encountered civilizations of giants living inside the earth. We cover this in the film. We cover the alien connection, how all these things connect with the aliens. Uh, we we, we kind of get into the deep underground bases a little bit. Uh, that's going to be more so for the second film. But... Uh, we're seeing all these prophecies, Daniel, the, these, we'll just say esoteric prophecies that are so closely linked to Bible prophecy, but from the opposite standpoint. And so that's another reason why this is so important. Most people have no idea the magnitude of the hollow earth and how important it really is in, in a student of the Bible who cares about eschatology in the end times. And regardless of somebody's eschatological stance on the rapture, we can all agree on the fact that the end times are going to be some pretty crazy events taking place. And so what we do is we're connecting the dots to have a better understanding. We're now able to study these ancient manuscripts of all these religions and their beliefs. We're able to interview people who believe these things even today. And then we can connect them with what the Bible says to get a fuller understanding of how these things might look in modern terms. Hmm. Mm -mm. That said, folks. Let me tell you something. I did see this documentary. Justin uh, very kindly shared it with me. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I, I really did. And um, I recommend you take a look at it. You can find it at fourthwatchfilms.com. That's fourthwatchfilms, all spelled out, dot com. And, of course, if you ever want to check out Justin's radio program, he has that at fourthwatchradio.com. Justin, really awesome program. I had an amazing time. Is there anything that you want to say before we close out this episode? Yeah, I, I, I want to say one thing here. Um, I had the vision to make this into a film years ago, uh, but we just we couldn't afford to make it because uh, the standard, uh, you know, the Hollywood standard, and I hate to use that word, but the Hollywood standard is, uh, it's a certain level of quality and production, and, it, you know, to make a high-quality documentary, it takes a lot of money, and um, I, I just, I, there was no budget to make this film uh, previously, but it wasn't God's timing, and it's very interesting that when money came around, you know, we didn't raise money for this, uh, we brought on some investors, 
and we produced a documentary literally up to par with quality of what you'd see on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, uh, the Steve Quayle films. Uh, I mean, we're right up there with the same quality, same production value. And uh, within 24 hours of having the money raised, within 24 hours, I mean, literally 24 hours later, we had an all-star cast lined up for the film. I mean, we have uh, Tom Horn, L.A. Marzulli, uh, Timothy Alberino, Steve Quayle, uh, Chief, Indian Chief Joseph Riverwind, uh, Jim Wilhelmson, Josh Peck, Derek Gilbert, myself. I mean, literally, uh, this film is an Ocean's Eleven cast. Um, never before has this group of people come together on one film. And it's unheard of. To, I mean, this was the hand of the Lord. We prayed about it. The Lord literally delivered everything in place within 24 hours. And that is unheard of. And so I knew as we set out to make this film, I knew that it was going to go into some directions that were really going to challenge some people and their end times views and even understanding what's going on today. And so I really believe that this film is going to be used by, by people to connect the dots uh, to a lot of things that they already know about theology, but it's going to give them a richer understanding. We go into so many biblical um, segments where we just we, we bring out the richness and the fullness of Scripture from a paranormal Perspective, and I, and I hate to use the word paranormal, but the Bible is not normal. I mean, it's not your everyday average book. The Bible is a supernatural, interwoven love letter and history book. A pro, I mean, including prophecy, history, everything you could ever imagine. And so to be able to take those elements and bring out this, this extremely supernatural view of Scripture— it was it was it was an honor and a pleasure, and so I want people to understand that this film is not just to educate, but it's to challenge, and it's literally to challenge their worldview and to sharpen them into understanding the supernatural aspects of Scripture and how that's important in the last days. Well, folks, you've heard it from the mouth of Justin Fall. Justin, again, thank you so much for joining me today, for talking about this work, and for all the effort that you put into actually executing the documentary folks again it's called hollow earth chronicles and until next time god bless and godspeed You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.